maybe the, one of the most well-known phrases we all know is once upon a time. And that's because we are obsessed with stories. We're story people. Just because we're humans, we are. We love some and we hate others. But we can't escape them. Stories captivate us. They repel us. They color our imaginations. As a child, I loved getting lost in one grand story that came from the brilliant mind of George Lucas, the saga of Star Wars. Anyone else love getting caught up in that saga? Yes. It's brilliant. I traded the cards, built the Legos, collected all the action figures, saw the movies many, many times. But more than anything, I loved getting out my toy lightsaber and becoming a Jedi Knight, becoming Luke Skywalker, and vanquishing the forces of evil fight and fighting for all that was good and just in the galaxy. This, of course, usually turned into su surprise attacks on my older brother, who was the present-day embodiment of that evil in our house, and going to his room and beating him with a piece of plastic, uh, and then him ending up pinning me on the ground and me screaming for mom to come break up the cosmic battle. But I loved entering into the story. It was wonderful fun. It, captiv it captivated my imagination. And stories like these can leave a strong imprint on our minds. When I hear that Star Wars music today, I feel that rush of nostalgia coming back from these memories and even the story itself. And this is because the stories we live in um, and adopt, they tie together our identity and our emotions. And they answer questions for us about who we are and where we are in the world and what we're meant to be doing. Now, I'm not endorsing adopting your faith or religion from pop culture. Please don't get that. Particularly Star Wars. It's more pantheistic than anything. It's definitely not Christian. But I do think the Star Wars narrative imprinted on me some symbols and characters that shaped how I understood some things about the world as a child, for better or for, for worse. But the point is this. Stories shape us. They remind us of who we are and mold who we are becoming. That's why over the next four weeks, we are going to tell a very old story. It's a Jewish story that grows out of the unique history of the Israelites, a people called by God to long ago to live differently from the world around them. They were called to worship and witness to the one true God, the one good and faithful God who created all things alone. The story we will tell is, of course, the story of Advent, and as Christians, it is our story and foundational to our story, too. But to know it's our story, to grasp the truth that the same God who made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the same God who delivered Israel from slavery out of Egypt, and who came to bring salvation to all people through the incarnation of Jesus Christ, to know this, we must hear the story, inhabit the story, and live the story first as a Jew would have during the first century in the Roman Empire. But before we get there, we must ask, why does this story even matter? Why on earth are we talking about it in the year 2017, at the close of the year 2017, in the days of modern nation-states, when the Roman Empire is really nothing but a relic of history? Here's why. This 2017-year-old story takes us to the beginning. The beginning, yes, of our modern calendars, but more importantly, it is the lens. It's the key that opens the door into knowing and experiencing and living in the grand story that God has been telling since the foundations of the world 
and that he will continue to tell until he returns to make all things new. This story is the beginning because it reveals to us who God is. We see his beauty and we see his faithful character. And on the opening pages of St. Luke's Gospel, we learn that when God acts, there's, one, there's only one appropriate response for us to have. Joy. Joy of anticipating God's works and of assurance that he will work. The joy of seeing his faithfulness alive in our midst and, of the, and the joy of seeing heaven itself come down to earth. And this Advent season, we will relive these aspects of joy that God's actions 2,017 years ago evoked in a group of faithful Jews. Yet, if the joy evoked in these chapters is, is as real as it appears to be, is as real as it claims to be, it will not remain there. It cannot, because it's supernatural joy. It's joy from beyond this world. Remember, this story is the lens for seeing God working yesterday, today, and tomorrow. The joy of this story will challenge all the other stories that we live in and make dim the other narratives of Christmas that are gleaming gaudily around us over the coming weeks. So come with me to the beginning of this story that is the beginning. St. Luke is our storyteller. We know he was a physician. We know he traveled with Paul on some of his missionary journeys. And he brought together a vast amount of material from the early church and put together a large two-volume set of the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts that together make up about a fourth of our New Testament. He tells us it was the time of Saint, uh, Saint Caesar Augustus's imperial reign. Herod is king over Judea, and the Jewish people living in Palestine are under foreign occupation. The promise of a, of, of a Messiah from the, from the prophets is now over 400 years old, distant to say the least. Yet into this silent, into this quiet, God speaks, God moves. Luke's miraculous story begins with three characters. First, a priest named Zechariah, a priestess named Elizabeth, his wife, and an angel named Gabriel. Zechariah and Elizabeth are an elderly couple, advanced in years. They're faithful servants of God. They follow all the statutes of the Lord, and they're of priestly descent. Elizabeth and Zechariah are known for their character and devotion to their faith. They are a couple who has modeled a lifetime in service to God. They have kept the faith. They have run the race well marked out for them. Yet, Luke tells us Elizabeth is barren. She cannot, she cannot conceive a child, and they have no descendants. Barrenness. The inability to have children. Some of you here know this painful reality. The longing for a child, the waiting, and the disappointment, month after month, year after year. One former First Lady of the United States, Laura Bush, who battled infertility for many years with her husband, described the experience like this. The English language lacks the words to mourn an absence. For the loss of a parent, grandparent, spouse, child, or friend, we have all manner of words and phrases, some helpful, some not. Still, we are conditioned to say something, even if it is only, I'm sorry for your loss. 
But for absence, for someone who is never there at all, we are wordless to capture that particular emptiness. For those who deeply want children and are denied them, those missing babies hover like silent ephemeral shadows over their lives. Who can describe the feel of a tiny hand that is never held? For Elizabeth, a Jewish woman living in a culture that prized family lineage, this also meant shame. Many Jews understood barrenness as a direct curse from God. But Luke has just told us Elizabeth and Zechariah are righteous people, following all the commandments of the Lord. So what are we to make of Elizabeth's barrenness? Well, if you're a keen Bible reader, you'll know that when barrenness enters the story of Scripture, it is a foreshadowing, actually, of God's faithfulness through the gift of a child and a sign that God is about to do something new and revolutionary. Elizabeth's barrenness echoes the barrenness of Sarah and her husband Abraham, who also could not conceive a child but were promised one in old age. After years of waiting, Sarah gave birth to Isaac, and God was doing something new through forming a people, Israel, who would witness to his character as a light to all of the other nations. Elizabeth's barrenness also echoes the barrenness of Hannah, the wife of Elkanah. After many years of infertility, God blessed Hannah with a son named Samuel. Again, God was doing something new. Samuel the prophet ushered in a new season of hope for God's people. His ministry marked the end of a dark, chaotic period in Israel's history and opened up one of new hope when Israel had a king to lead them in their call to be a light to the world. However, as you may remember from our sermons and studies called Shadowlands in the books of Samuel and Kings, things didn't always or hardly ever turn out well for the monarchy in Israel. This people God chose to live righteously in relationship with him failed to do so over and over. And their kings failed to lead righteously over and over. Now, Luke tells of another woman in her old age, barren, yet righteous before God, Elizabeth. She is the next woman we find barren in the great story since Hannah. Is God up to something new again? In Elizabeth's day, God had not spoken to the people in a very long time. The Israelites historically depended on prophets to bring God's word to them. Prophets like Samuel and Elijah, or later Isaiah and Jeremiah, to guide them and show them how to live. Yet in the first century, it had been over 400 years since Malachi, the last prophet, had spoken. The people yearned for a sign, for something, for anything, to penetrate the silence, for a new day to dawn. When will God speak to us? When is the day of our salvation? Elizabeth's barrenness not only carries the weight of her and Zechariah's longing for a child, but it reflects the barren state of God's people as well. But there's a third character in the story we have yet to meet. Verses 8 to 11 of chapter 1 tell us Zechariah is serving in the temple Like any priest, he only had the privilege of doing this two weeks out of the year. This was a special time for him. Further, Zechariah is chosen to enter into the sanctuary of the temple and burn incense on the altar of God. This was a high honor, an honor a priest would have only received once in his whole life, if that. Some never had the opportunity to do so. 
But on this day, Zechariah was chosen by God to draw close to the holy place of his dwelling in the temple. Luke also tells us that the multitude of people are outside praying, heightening the expectation that this is a significant moment in the story. And it does not disappoint. Zechariah stands before the altar of incense, and something happens that he never expected. A bright, gleaming, celestial being appears before him, an angel. And like many people in Scripture who encounter angels, he is terrified, absolutely terrified. And this is not just any angel. This is Gabriel. Gabriel of old, who met Israel's forefather, Daniel, who explained his prophetic dreams and announced a message of hope to God's people to Daniel. Gabriel comes to Zechariah in a very similar way as he came to Daniel. First, he leaves Zechariah terrified, just as he left Daniel terrified. But he also shows up at the same time, that of the evening sacrifice. And he brings a very similar message, a message of hope. As one commentator puts it, Gabriel's presence itself symbolizes the renewal of God's involvement with his people. So to a barren family and to a barren people, Gabriel comes to speak. We know barrenness often provides this opportunity for God to do something new among his people. And we know Gabriel is a messenger, a messenger of hope and of anticipation. So what is God up to? What will he say? Let's hear Gabriel's words to Zechariah in full. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call him John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many people will rejoice in his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, for he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel back to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Here is the heart of our passage today. Rejoice! God has heard your prayer, Zechariah, and he is faithful. Rejoice! God has heard your prayer, and he is faithful. Now, why rejoice? Well, on one, on one level, Zechariah will rejoice because of the announcement of a child. At long last, Gabriel is telling him he will be a father, and Elizabeth a mother. Despite the many years of barrenness, despite their old age, like Sarah before her, Elizabeth would bear a child. This is good news. Their hopes of lineage will be fulfilled. They will have a son who will also be able to care for them in their old age. God is going to take care of them. Zechariah, you will have joy and gladness. God has heard your prayer, and he is going to take care of you. He is faithful, is what Gabriel is saying. But if we stop here, we miss the point entirely. Because Gabriel makes clear that not only will Elizabeth and Zechariah rejoice in this good news, but many will rejoice because their son John will be great before the Lord. 
But what will make him great? This deeper lay of joy comes from who John is called to be. He will be great before the Lord because with the birth of John, God is going to do something new. God will be involved with his people in an entirely new, more intimate, more personal way than they could ever imagine. John is the forerunner, the torchbearer, the herald to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. John will be a prophet, the last of the great prophets of Israel's history. John would be filled with the Holy Spirit, but not like the other prophets who were filled at specific times for miraculous deeds. John will be filled even from his mother's womb. John will fulfill the words of Malachi, the last prophet who spoke to Israel, who foretold a messenger who would come to prepare the way for the Lord. Here's what Malachi foretold. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And here is John, says Gabriel, in the spirit and power of Elijah, coming to do exactly what Malachi foretold, to turn the hearts of people back to God in repentance, to cast a vision for God's grand plan of salvation, and to prepare the Jewish people for the long-awaited coming of their Messiah. This was John's mission. This is what would make him great. This good news is the reason for joy. It had been 400 years of silence. It's a long time of barrenness for Elizabeth, for Zechariah, for the Israelites. But to a barren womb, to Elizabeth, a child is promised. But that isn't all. The real joy of this story, the joy of Advent, is bigger. To a barren people, God speaks. Zechariah doubted Gabriel's message of joy. How can this be so? We are too old for a child. You can understand why. Do you ever feel this way? Has it maybe been days, weeks, months, or years even? Maybe your whole life, it seems like you've been waiting for God to speak, for God to act. Maybe your faith is holding on by a thread, and all the evidence points to the contrary. It's not really real. The truth of the gospel in front of us today lies in five short words from Gabriel. Your prayer has been heard. The promise of John's birth is a witness when all evidence points to the contrary, when God seems distant, when years of silence have passed, when Caesar is worshipped as God, and the evening sacrifices at the temple feel like nothing more than just another cultural ritual. Your prayer has been heard, Zechariah. The promise of the child is a witness to us as well, when the narratives of life in 21st century Vancouver are more powerful and consuming than the gospel story, when prayer feels futile at worst and desperate at best, your prayer has been heard. John's birth and life show us that God's workings are going to look different than we anticipate. Elizabeth and Zechariah, they will have a son, but he will not be the son to care for them in their old age or to pass on their lineage. 
their son of priestly descent will be a prophet proclaiming repentance and judgment. He will wear camel's hair. He will eat honey and locusts in the wilderness. He will baptize in the Jordan River. Then he'll be beheaded in prison because of a feud with Herod's wife. His life cut short. But his parents' prayer was heard, and God was faithful. And they could rejoice because God was on the move again. They and many others, in fact, the whole world, even us today, can rejoice because of God's grand plan of redemption and restoration that John's life pointed to. Rejoice in Gabriel's promises made, in God's promises made through Gabriel's words, and rejoice in in anticipation of them being fulfilled. Advent is a season of looking forward, of expecting, of anticipating. If you feel barrenness in your soul, a sort of silence, a sinking doubt, a nagging fear in your faith, in your life, this enunciation of John's birth that we celebrate this first Sunday of Advent proclaims one powerful truth to you. Your prayer has been heard. And the story of Jesus, the story of Jesus, the Savior, who came and who is coming, guess what? It's real. It's true. It's not fluff. It's not sentimentality. It's not an invention of the early church. It is far more real than all the fake versions of holiday cheer that will be poured down our throats over the coming weeks. Underneath all of that noise and all the consumerism and all the family drama, there is a story to be found that begins all other stories. This story is the key that opens the door into knowing and experiencing and living in the grand story that God has been telling since the foundation of the world and that he will continue to tell until he returns to make all things new again. It is the key to living with joy that anticipates, with faith, the coming of a Savior. So let us rejoice. Though we may sit in darkness, dawn will break. The Lord will be our light. Jesus Jesus Christ is coming. He is faithful and he has not forgotten us. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly.